0: Hello, and in this second episode, we continue our discussion with a focus on fibromyalgia from the practitioner's perspective, where we will consider the experiences of the healthcare professional in treating fibromyalgia, considering the importance of shared decision making between both the patient and practitioner, what treatment options there are, and a consideration of those non-pharmacological approaches. Hi guys, thanks again for joining me again. In the first episode, we considered the patient perspective and the burden of fibromyalgia has on those living with this condition. Daniel, if I could come to you first as a practitioner, working with those living with fibromyalgia, has your experience of the patient perspective influenced or shaped your description of what fibromyalgia is?
1: We learn a tremendous amount from listening to our patients. Um, and fibromyalgia patients um, all have a story. And um, if you begin by listening to their story, you'll be a much better provider. You're also a much better researcher if you incorporate them into your research. Um, and so that's just been the philosophy of our, our group in general is it's always about the patients, whether you're doing research or whether it's clinical care. And you, and you have to understand the journey that these patients have been on before they come to you, because a lot of people have told them there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head. Um, and, uh, and they have developed anxiety or depression or catastrophizing as a result of having pain rather than those things actually being the cause of their pain. And so, uh, I spend a lot of my time when I'm talking to providers or even challenging pain psychologists in our own group, about the sort of the interplay between the, the, the presentation and the psychological factors, to which came first. And you, um, it, at some level, it doesn't matter, but I think a lot of providers need to understand that a, a lot of the anxiety, the depression, the catastrophizing is because these individuals have sought care for their problem and it hasn't been given to them. And, they, and they're anxious and depressed and catastrophizing because they feel terrible.
0: And Kevin, you discussed your experience in the first episode. How does your experience reflect what Dan is saying about that shared decision making? Did you feel you had that opportunity and that discussion when you were going through the initial journey?
2: I think in the initial journey before my diagnosis, because there was no clarity about what was actually happening, it was really difficult to know how to effectively make decisions together because there is no kind of unifying diagnosis that I was able to look to and understand. Like it's one thing to be told, you have tendinitis, you have a twisted vertebrae in your back, you have sleep issues. It's much different to hear those things, try those treatments that were suggested and have nothing be effective and in fact symptoms to get worse than it is to have this sort of overarching framework um, that makes it possible to fit these sorts of different approaches into the mix. I've, I've heard from a lot of people as they feel like, oh, this was like, I had all these things and then this was kind of the catch-all <laughs> um, piece, the, the catch-all diagnosis that finally ended up fitting Uh, even though it is this mysterious and challenging thing, um, and to, to have received that is definitely scary. Um, but to, to have somebody name that, I just don't think you can overemphasize the importance of that, that naming. Um, while also considering that, like that name at some point can become uh, a burden to bear in and of itself. And yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is, you know, when Dan and I had our conversations initially, not only did the educational uh, materials that he sent me give me a sense of, oh, wow, there's already several things that I'm interested in doing that are evidence-based. When we had our conversations following that, Dan's typical response was, of course, do those things. And I'll be supportive of what you try to do. And so that made it very easy to, well, as easy as it could at that time, where it's at, you know, probably the lowest point of health in my life, uh, to, to at least take the first step to start uh, seeing how to access those sorts of treatments and practices, which is I will say a whole nother different thing. There's not a lot of access to some of those, especially within the current medical system.
0: Yeah. And I guess one thing to touch upon is that you, you sort of have a personal relationship there already between your family connection. If I could come to you, Dan, do you feel that your approach perhaps would differ if you were presented with a a naive patient versus perhaps someone who's got more experience with having fibromyalgia, how would you maybe approach each of those kinds of scenarios?
1: I don't think I really approached Kevin differently than I did any other patient. You, have, you really, again, have to take people where they are. The fact that he's trained as a scientist is helpful because essentially what you're asking people to do as their doctor is to do a series of experiments on themselves. Um, and try one thing at a time and see what works. And if it works, we'll keep it. And if it doesn't, we'll discard it. And But if you, the real danger with conditions like fibromyalgia is if people don't develop that attitude and if providers don't have that attitude, people get like on all these other, all these drugs and all these treatments, and you can't even tell what's helping them and what's not helping them. And they're often sort of a hot mess um, in part because they're just taking so many things that are causing more side effects than Helping. So you really have to impose like a, a strategy for the patient and say, you, you know, you, I'm going to give you the opportunity to choose which drug or non-drug treatments we try, but I'm going to impose, let's just do one at a time, give it a, a couple months, see if it's working or not, and then make the call. Is that, did that work well enough that you're going to keep doing it? Yes, no. And then move on to the next treatment that you choose based on your preference and the, you know the, the things you gravitate towards trying but um, again I think as a provider you help provide the motivation and sort of the structure for this series of experiments you want the person to undertake.
0: And are there, are there any other methods or approaches practitioners could utilize to to encourage that buy-in from the patient? Um, is there anything that was effective for you, Kevin? Perhaps.
2: I mean, being listened to and being heard obviously goes a long way. Um, part of the biggest challenge in that initial initial phase is, you know, someone might hear me, but they if they don't understand or they don't have a any kind of framework to fit this into it just ends up being a, well, I can't help you uh, kind of response. And that feels disempowering to receive over and over again, especially given the context of healthcare, where ideally you're going in and you're getting some kind of useful uh, information, um, but also just the sort of culture that we have of like, you're going in maybe to find a a fix, (laughs) like, and I mean that in like, you want somebody to to fix you because like that's, that's what we've been acculturated to understand will happen in a healthcare setting. And so I think that's in some ways getting out of that mindset has been one of the most powerful and important things for me to take away from this journey because it then places a lot of that power and empowerment within myself. Um, with then being able to envision skilled healthcare providers um, in this role of like a very supportive and knowledgeable, you know, acquaintance or friend, um, rather than, you know, sort of this elevating them to a a pedestal of all-knowing and being able to fix all these things when that's, that's actually an unfair expectation to enter into any encounter with a healthcare provider.
1: We and others have done studies in in fibromyalgia and other chronic pain conditions, and just being able to switch someone from an external locus of control, i.e., I don't know what my pain is due to, it's mysterious, I don't know, to an internal locus of control. That's what a lot of what we need to do to get people to motivate, motivated to do these non pharmacologic therapies is I'm gonna get charged take charge of this. I'm going to lick this like I have other problems in the course, you know, that I've encountered over the course of my life. And that's when you see people get a lot better is when we can help flip that switch for them to that the, they do have the ability to control a lot of this. They're not helpless. The, the other thing for patients to understand, and this again goes back to what I was talking about is how important it is to get the the patient or the person with pain to take control, is the type of treatment you get for your pain will be largely dictated by the type of healthcare provider you go to see for your pain. If you keep going to a surgeon because of pain, eventually they probably will do surgery. If you go to a place that where everyone's been trained to do injections in the spine, you're going to get a spinal injection. Um, and so if you want to get the kinds of treatments that we talked about today, you're going to want to go to people that practice integrative medicine, family medicine, uh, their, their primary care physicians that, that really focus on whole person health types of approaches because that's the kind of treatments you need when you have chronic pain um, and you can avoid some of the mal and mistreatments by just going to different types of doctors or healthcare
0: providers and Kevin mentioned materials that he found useful are there any resources that would help with that that we could signpost to
1: well we have a website that that our group has put together led by Dave Williams called painguide.com and it's freely available and Variations of this are being tested in a number of different um, NIH funded studies in the United States in different pain conditions. So, and there's a lot of things like that. There's smartphone apps. If someone, for example, says, you know, I want to try acupressure, I want to try cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia for my fibromyalgia, go to the app store and find an app. And it's often the case you can try things now with. Um, You do things via Zoom that you used to have to go in person or use apps or websites. But, uh, you know, try to try new therapies. I I can't emphasize that enough from the provider standpoint. Your job is to encourage people, to motivate them to keep trying things. Use the one out of three rule. You know, if you try three new things, one of them will work. And, And for the patients, it's please stay motivated to try new things because you're not going to get better if you don't.
0: And then um, what additional um, perhaps challenges have been encountered that perhaps we need to advocate more in the medical community to alleviate the barriers of non-pharmacological approaches? For example, um, we have exercise guidelines, but they're not necessarily Uh, specific to specific conditions like fibromyalgia what are things we can do in in practice and within research that we could help shape and move things forward even more to help both practitioners and patients in providing advice and guidance Uh, if I could come to you Dan first
1: there's a number of different things you can do. I think different providers can sort of modify their scope of practice. Some of the best physiotherapists start to incorporate, you know, elements of cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and, and I, a lot of providers, I hope, I think, are moving towards whole person health. A lot of the therapies that we use are things that are not just effective for fibromyalgia or other chronic pain conditions. They can be used for a lot of different um, conditions, and so, uh, again, I think trying to make those more broadly um accessible um in really encouraging people uh, you know, to access those therapies is is really one of the main ways in which we can improve the care of people with fibromyalgia or any kind of chronic pain.
0: And Kevin, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I, I think I'd add to that. Maybe just diving a little more deeply into the access side of things. So, As I've gone through this process, I've just noticed consistently how many of the effective treatments have no medical insurance coverage in the US. So, when I was getting acupuncture, I wasn't getting, I was paying out of pocket. Uh, When I was getting massages, I was paying out of pocket. There's no insurance coverage for yoga lessons um, or things of that nature. And so, understanding how to find whether there's a certification process or some other way that these evidence-based therapies can actually be integrated into healthcare and then be made accessible to people by ensuring there's enough treatment providers, um, I think is one of the key gaps here. I see this uh, when it comes to, to therapy all the time. Like I've talked to many people who want to find somebody who's a pain psychologist, but they only know of a couple, the waiting list is long. And by the time they might even be able to be seen for an intake, they've gone through X number of months of worsening symptoms. Um, and so I think it just, it, that's something that makes it especially challenging to to know that you might just have to wait simply because those people aren't there or you pay out of pocket. Um, and I was very privileged to, you know, my family has enough money for me to to do those things, but I just consistently reflect on how I've had so much luck to have gotten to the place that I am now um, where, you know, I do feel in the best shape of my life uh, where I am now um, and how if I didn't have resources, if my family did not have resources, that almost certainly would not be the case.
0: So would you say that was your biggest vision for the future of fibromyalgia treatment?
2: As in having this increased access for these things that we know work? Yeah, I think that that would be incredibly helpful. Um, And I mean, obviously, the thing is to, to go with that, you have to have all these Kind of cultural technologies come into play you have to have people be open to that on the patient side of that and, and the health care provider side of things because without that like you know acupuncture and needles is pretty scary to a lot of people a lot of people don't like needles for example <laughs> um, and um, so I think there's just a A lot of different ways of conceptualizing what health means and what healing means, that uh, if we have those conversations, that might change how we then uh, approach insurance and what is covered and what isn't.
0: And Dan, what's your vision for the future of fibromyalgia treatment, and does non-pharmacological strategies fit into that vision?
1: Absolutely, and I would probably actually presented in a slightly different way, and that is if we had all of these non-pharmacologic therapies available to our patients, what we would do is identify um, children and adolescents that are on their way to developing fibromyalgia and start to get them involved in, you know, using mindfulness and meditation and yoga and things. Because we see that many people with fibromyalgia have had this condition for 15 20 25 30 years before it's diagnosed and treated and there's no medical condition i know of that you can wait that long to start treating it where start where part of it doesn't become irreversible and i don't think fibromyalgia doesn't become irreversible because of damage to tissues it becomes irreversible because of what it does to people's ability to make in money and make money It, it be what it does to their lives and things like that so unless and until they get effective treatments functionally it really has a negative impact on them. And if they wait too long in their life to start using those integrative treatments because they see that they that really would help them, sometimes it's, I, I don't want to say too late, that sounds too negative, but the horse is out of the barn.
0: I think you, you uh, end on a very pertinent point there that I think people can think about or how fibromyalgia can be a focus of the future. So thank you both for joining me today. Um, it's been a really useful and engaging conversation. Um, I want to extend my sincere gratitude to you both, Kevin and Dan, for sharing these insights and perspectives. Um, I guess for our audience, whether you're someone living with fibromyalgia or you're a practitioner dedicated to the well-being of your patients, What we've learned is that it's important to consider that shared decision-making approach, consider your patient's journey, and consider all of the options available, including the the non-pharmaceutical approaches. And I don't think that can be overstated enough. So thank you both for joining me.
1: Thanks for having us. Delighted to be here.
0: So that concludes today's episode. I just take this moment to thank Dr. Kevin Bunker and Professor Daniel Kluhl for joining us and sharing their insights around fibromyalgia insights and perspectives from the patient and practitioner with our audience this was the final episode of a two-part series if you enjoyed this episode of the EMJ podcast this series can be accessed through your preferred podcast platform these alongside an informative infographic can also be accessed by visiting emjreviews.com until next time take care and goodbye for now